greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Hello and welcome to Winds of Change. This is your host and Bible teacher Keith McKenzie and this is session 27 in our study on Bibliology with Pastor Conway Campbell. We're still working our way through the section on the canonicity of the Bible and today we get into some very interesting subjects. Today, uh, Pastor will be covering, uh, again, concerns about the canonicity, books that were not immediately recognized Jude uh, seems to be mentioned in the Apocrypha and the so-called lost books. We'll be contrasting the Christian Bible with the Roman Catholic Bible and the Greek Orthodox Bible. And also some other things that you've probably heard of over uh, the ages of uh, the book of Judith, the wisdom of Solomon, uh, additions to Esther, Baruch, the epistle of Jeremiah. Uh, and other things such as the Maccabees and the prayer of Manasseh and a few others are all uh, required and why these are not in the Protestant Bibles and why the Protestants reject the Apocrypha. These and other things, Pastor, will cover, so we're going to just let them take us in. Go ahead, Pastor. All right, everyone, we're beginning the sixth and final section of our study, and so everybody should everybody should have notes from 6.1 to 6.5 um, in your thing. If not, there's a few over there. And um, the other thing that you should have that I made up is this chart development of the English Bible. That's over on the chair also. Um, and we'll reference that quite a bit as we, we go through this. Um, I think what we might have to do is we may get up to the KJV and and then um, may take our summer break and resume it in September. And my Rather than rushing it, I, I was thinking about putting the pedal on and trying to get through it, but I'd rather not rush it. Um, and then probably starting late fall or January will be the book of Revelation. That's what I'm planning right now. God could change that. So let's set the tone for this section. Um, there's some questions that we will ponder in this section you, you'll see um, and George you should already have that section 6 part 1 okay that's fine alright that's my fault All right. but yeah everybody should have 6 everybody who's been here should have start section 6 starting in part 1 just check your binder. Do you have that? Okay, that's fine. But you have Section 6, Part 1. Okay. All right. That's all we're going to do tonight, Section 6, Part 1. All right. Um, some questions that we're going to look at is, is how did the English Bible come about? And um, what effect has Bible translations had on um, Protestant evangelical Christianity? What events unfolded in church history that led to the English Bible? Um, we'll look at how the KJV developed, um, how to respond to those who say the KJV is the only reliable English translation. 
what is the difference between formal and dynamic equivalent translations of the Bible, plus some other terms around that as well. What is the difference between a translation, a version, and a revision? We'll look at that towards the end there. Um, are all paraphrased translations faithful to the original text? Um, what is meant by gender-inclusive language? I'm actually working on those sections now, looking at the, um, the TNIV um, and the new NIV. I'm actually looking at those ones now. Um, and um, how is the gender-inclusive point of view influencing modern-day translations? And so um, we'll spend about three weeks on the gender-inclusive issues, started with the NRSV, the NIV, the TNIV, and uh, the new NIV, the NIV 2011, um, is not as bad as the TNIV, but... Um, but uh, very similar, actually. And the NIVI um, inclusive, NIV inclusive, that was uh, one that was published in England before the TNIV came out in America. So we'll look at all of those as well and some other things. And I think probably the last thing that we'll look at is there's so many other things we'll do, like a catch-all question, questions that we couldn't address because we have to end this at some point. So those are just some of the questions, and, and there will be a lot more that will come up um, as, as we deal with this issue. But for the first five to 700 years of the English language, um, they had no complete translation of the Bible in terms of in, in English for the first 500 to 700 years of the language. And much has changed since the translation of the the Vulgate or the Latin Vulgate by Jerome, and it's in the middle of your first page on that chart. You could see the Latin Vulgate that kind of set the tone for a lot of things going forward with translations, um, and that was near the end of the fourth century. And as a result, today more Bibles are distributed in English than in any other language. And so that is why this section will take so long, because there's so many English translations, there's so many nuances with them, and, and this is an important issue because the Bible is indispensable to our faith, not just theoretically, but practically. There's a lot of practicality. Theologic, the, theology is very practical. It affects every aspect of life. It affects our finances. It affects our marriage, our view of God, our worship of him, you name it. Um, theology covers it all, and the Bible covers it all, since the Bible is the revelation of God to us. And so we can't know him without knowing what he reveals to us. Otherwise, we're going to be worshiping a God of our own imagination, as a lot of people do. They make up a God, and they worship this God, and this God changes all the time. But God's given us and revealed himself to us in his word. And so the English language now has many translations, ranging from the King James to the modern best-selling NIV. All these translations are both a blessing and a challenge for the reader. Because when we look at all the translations, some of them have not been very faithful to the original. Um, some have been. Um, but many have not. On the other hand, it's a blessing because English readers have a variety of choices. Uh, there's a range of translation choices that we have as English readers. But on the other hand, 
selecting a translation from so, so many can be a difficult task sometimes. It can be a hard process. Think about somebody who's a new believer or somebody who's just seeking. What, what would they pick, you know, without a recommendation from, from someone? And so they may pick the wrong translation. Um, but when you look at some other languages who have so very few English, um, English readers have a range of choices. We have literal readings, um, and we'll, we'll look at that a little bit later, too. When we say literal, um, it, it's as literal as it can be. There, there are some translations that we'll look at that try to be very literal, and the, the reading is just so wooden that you really can't read it. So as literal as you can be in terms of word order, because if you're going to be really literal, the word order would be exact as it would be in the Greek, and it would be very hard to, to read. So we have literal readings. We have paraphrase renderings of the original sense or, or thoughts. Um, and, um, and, and so we'll look, at, we'll look at all of those. But there was a time when English readers had very little choice in translations. And in some cases, for those who, who could read, they were told that the Bible, um, they, they, they were told what Bible they could read for the ones who could read, if they were allowed to read one at all. And when we look at nowadays and we contrast it to, to um, in the early days, the Bible is packaged in so many different ways nowadays, if you think about it. I tried to go through and see some different types. We have parallel versions. We have children's ministry Bibles, ladies' study Bibles, chronological Bibles, the Discovery Bible, Life Principles Bible, the Amplified Bible, Illustrated Bibles. You know, there are Bibles without chapter and verse divisions. They're just You just read it. There are daily walk Bibles. The serendipity Bible that was set up for small groups. And, and that is why when we look at a version like the NIV, that's why it sold so much because they just repackaged it. The, the, the folks there at Zondervan were genius in terms of just repackaging it. Sometimes you go to somebody and you say, what kind of Bible do you have? And they say, oh, I have the, the men's basketball Bible. I don't think that exists, but um, they might say, what version is that? And they're like, oh, it's NIV. But they package it in so many different ways, and people would just buy it and say, ah, I'm a woman, and I need this Bible. You know, and so it's a packaging in so many ways. And so I'm not saying all those ones are NIV, but you could you could tell, you know, John MacArthur probably has like a couple out and, and and Charles Stanley and just in terms of the principles and different things that are going on. The Ryrie Studden Bible, the Thompson Chain Reference Bible and, and so on and so forth. So how do the different translations compare to one another? And how did we get our Bible in the first place? And that's what we'll do in this section. We're going to start off with the development of the Wycliffe Bible and and that, that section will kind of lead up to the, the, the King James Version, and then we'll launch from the King James Version to where we are today, looking at um, a lot of those modern translations, um, such as the NASB and the ESV and the NIV, TNIV, and so on and so forth. Um, we might touch on the Net Bible a little bit. New English translation. We'll, and so we'll look at some of those things. But before we start with Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, um, um, I think is the correct pronunciation, pronunciation, let's look at some terms that might be helpful as we go along. And these are things that you'll hear. So I, I wanted to put it in up front just so um, you could see those glossary of terms. And, and, and the first one there is a literal 
um, uh, translation. This is a word-for-word approach to translation, generally following the syntax and word order of the text being translated. This classification identifies Bibles that uh, practice principles of formal equivalence before its emergence as formally developed philosophy. So, so I talked about it. It's pretty exact. And when we look at some of these translations, they weren't well received, some of the more literal ones, because they were just so wooden in the reading. You know what I mean by wooden? It's just hard to, to read. Um, idiomatic thought for thought um, approach to translation, generally conforming to the syntax and word order of the receptor or receiver language for the sake of clearly representing the original text meaning. This uh, classification identifies Bibles that practice principles of dynamic equivalence before its emergence as formally developed translation philosophy. So thought for thought, they would look at a passage and say, what, what, what is that passage um, trying to say? And then they would look at the, the, the original and they'd say, what's the general idea of this? And then in the English they would say, this is the, what I think the thought is. And they would put that down in the paper. And then we have formal equivalence. This is a technical term for the word-for-word -word approach to translation generally following the syntax and word order of the text being um, translated. So in terms of the formal, the KJV and the, the NASB falls into that. We have the dynamic equivalence, um, technical term for the thought-for-thought -thought approach to translation generally um, conforming. So similar to the idiomatic, um, the NIV would probably fall into, into that realm. Then there's a blend of dynamic and formal equivalence, um, blend of those two. And then there's a paraphrase. Paraphrase is a free-form approach to translation that generally produces the most idiomatic rendering possible. Uh, most paraphrases are the work of single individuals and may or may not be based on the original text. Can anybody think of a paraphrase that's out there right now? The message, Eugene Peterson. And, yeah, he, he's, he just did that. And so I wouldn't call it a Bible. You know, I'd call it a commentary if I would want to go that way. Um, but that's a, a paraphrase. Anybody could think of another one? All right. Yeah. Phillips, yeah, and living, yeah, those are, those are some, some good paraphrases. And again, you know, sometimes people read them to try and get the sense of some passages, but again, it's one person's rendering, so we have to read them very, very carefully. Monica? So, yeah, you, the, the, term, the term that's used more nowadays is formal, all right? Um, yeah, yeah. George? Probably. I haven't read that. Have you read it? Is it? You? Is it? Okay. I have, I have not read that one. Yeah. It, was it really? Good news for modern man? Oh, okay. Maya? <laughs> yeah. It's like the school you could go to. Um... All right. Um, so, again, I just mentioned those just so we have an idea. But we'll look more again at these later as we talk more about each translation. But, okay, John Wycliffe, all right? The development, number one, the development of the Wycliffe Bible, all right? And um, we're going to try and hopefully remember some of these in order, Wycliffe, Tyndale, and Coverdale being the first three, and then um, we'll go from there. Um, 
Wycliffe, he completed his translation of the New Testament in 1382. Now, something to remember as we go through all of this, sometimes you will see um, two dates next to a translation. And the first date will most likely always be the New Testament. Follow the second date, the Old Testament. So most translators are doing the New Testament first, and then a few years later they're completing the Old Testament. All right? So he completed his translation of the Old Testament in 1382. And until that time, only small portions of the Bible had been translated into English. Now, the English language traces its roots back to approximately A.D. 600. And within a few hundred years, the Psalms and portions of the Gospels had had been translated. But not only were these translation pieces incomplete, but there were other problems with them. You know, they were all translations from the Latin Vulgate, all right? And we'll call it the Vulgate. That was um, Jerome, or St. Jerome, as some people call him. He did the Vulgate in the 4th century. And, but all those little pieces that were done there were done from the Vulgate rather than from the original Greek and Hebrew texts. The purple. Everything's just color-coded so you kind of follow along with it. That's why I printed it in color, then black and white, so you can kind of see where, what Bibles came from what, okay? All right. Now, the translation that was done by Jerome was was, was great one for Latin, all right? It has, you know, a lot of people still give that a lot of props. But the challenge with Latin is that it's a limited language, and and and. Unfortunately, some doctrines were built off of the Latin translation, and that's where some of the stuff went. For example, the doctrine of who the church is built on, right? Remember Matthew 16:18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, we've looked at this verse before and looked at the different renderings um, in the Greek. And um, in, in Greek, there are two words um, for rock, right? Um, I say unto you that you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. So Peter's nickname is Rock, right? That's what his name means. But in the Latin, that nuance is lost because there's only one word for rock. And so you could see how that doctrine is built. It's not like the Catholic Church said, we're just going to ignore that and not look at that. They're, they're coming, they're pulling. And when we look at the Douay Rheims or the Rheims Douay Bible, which is the official of the Catholic Church, we'll see this is coming right from the Vulgate. All right? So that's how they get this idea. Um, and so they just have one word for rock there. And so it's limited to use the Latin to translate to English. And so those English translations were not very good translations because of the limited nature of that language. And for the most part, they were not accessible by lay folks. Um, and, and generally what they were there for is to help the priests to understand Latin better. And so masses were in Latin then. Were they in Latin when you were coming up? Um, did you think that the priests had um, a good knowledge of Latin or they, were just, they just knew those parts? Yeah, right. 
And, and, and this is coming from a, a long way because a lot of times when people would go and they would ask the priest, you know, what's God's will, they would say, you don't need to know that. You just know what I, I tell you because maybe either they don't, didn't know it themselves, they didn't know the, how to read the rest of it in Latin, they could read the parts that they needed for the Mass or they only knew certain things by, um, by memory. And so the English was there to help them understand the Latin um, better. English was, um, was only infrequently used for any written documents. The, the, the noblemen wrote in French, and the language of the elite and all the church documents was, was done in Latin. And so they considered English for peasants. That was the peasant language, all right? Now, who was John Wycliffe? He lived in the 1300s, which is significant. Because if we look at the time he came into the world, in 1348, the bubonic plague and black death, as they call it, was hitting England. So imagine living in a time where at least half of your friends and family, um, not maybe half, but maybe 30%, um, were dead within a few months. Um, You would start to doubt your own destiny. You wouldn't know if you were going to make it the next year. And so at that time, also, the the papacy was in crisis. The popes at that time um, lived in France. And that caused some friction between people who were English, because how could you obey a pope and respect a pope when they lived in France, who at the time was England's enemy? And so there there were some issues going on there. And on top of that, um, the church in England was in disarray. Um, there was a lot of political stuff going on. They gave the best government jobs to clergy. Um, and so some of the elite or some of the noble wanted some of those jobs, but the clergy were getting them. And so there were um, some conflicts there. And so rather than, you know, the fighting like we have today between Democrats and Republicans, England had the, the pro-clergy and the anti-clergy parties. And so it was a tough time for many people. And, and again, you know, as, as mentioned before, God forbid you ask the local priest, what is God's will for my life? They would, they would chastise you for that. They would yell at you for asking such a question because they didn't know the answer most likely. And so um, they would never really have read the whole Bible themselves, ever. And besides that, their Latin skills weren't very good either. It was just enough for... Um, doing certain things in the service. So life physically, socially, financially, spiritually was pretty bleak in the 14th century. And it was into this climate that John Wycliffe was born. He was born sometime between 1325 and 1330. Not exactly sure. They'll use the date of 1330. But sometime in between there, he was super smart guy. Um, he was educated at Oxford. Um, earning his doctorate in theology um, when he was in his 40s, which was in 1372. And so he was the preeminent Oxford theologian of his day, George being the one of today, um, comparable. So, um, and even though he was a Roman Catholic priest, he didn't hesitate to bash the church or to talk against some of the things that was in the church, some of the excesses perhaps. And so he began to to chip away at some of the unbiblical practices and beliefs in the church. 
And so not only did he reject the doctrine of transubstantiation, you know that doctrine where it's believed that the, the, the uh, crackers and juice actually become the body and blood of Christ. He rejected that, but he also rejected all church hierarchy, including papal authority. He rejected that. And so to Wycliffe, the, 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 the Bible rather than the Pope was our ultimate authority. And so he was a man of controversy in, in those times. But his views, of course, didn't go unchallenged um, because he was fired from his job in Oxford. He taught there in 1382. And throughout his lifetime, there were five papal edicts that were issued for his arrest. And um, we had some anti-clergy folks who protected him from arrest and, um, and hit him out and so forth. But in 1384, he died of natural causes, and he was buried in the Lutterworth Church Cemetery where he was pastor. Listen to one thing that he wrote. He said, those heretics who pretend that the laity need not know God's law, but that the knowledge which priests have had imparted to them by word of mouth is sufficient, do not deserve to be listened to. For holy scriptures is the faith of the church, and the more widely its true meaning becomes known, the better it will be. Therefore, since the laity should know the faith, it should be taught in whatever language is most easily comprehended. After all, Christ and his apostles taught the people in the language best known to them. And he was like an in-your-face guy in terms of what he talked about. He didn't pull any punches. He wanted to get the Bible into the hands of the people because before then it was kept back and people were not encouraged to, to read because he believed that people could think for themselves. And once they read the scripture, they would be saved. Now, let's discuss his translation, letter B. He was the, the impetus behind a translation of the New Testament into Greek that was finished in 1382, as I mentioned. George? Not all. Not all. Well, some could. Some of the peasants could. But... As time goes along, people would learn it. And, but the key is that he wanted to get into their hands so that, because um, remember, it was more for the elite now who could read Latin and, and look at that. But some peasants could read English, and so if he could at least get into their hands, they could see what God's will is. They could read it themselves and maybe teach each other, help each other as they go along. So he completed the translation in 1382, and, and, and there's some debate out there about how much of the New Testament he himself actually um, personally did, but he was the prime mover in, in the translation and its production. We do know, though, that the Old Testament was done entirely by, by others after his death. Um, he wasn't even included in that, but he, his, his organization, if you will, gets credit for that. And so the, the, the text that Wycliffe and his associates transla translated from was the Latin Vulgate rather than the original Greek and, and Hebrew. Now, why did they use the, 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 the Latin? Um, at that time, Greek had began to die out in Western Europe after Constantine moved the capital to the east. And so Latin became the language of the people in the West. And so all the clergy in the West for, for a thousand years had to learn Latin not Greek or, or Hebrew. And so in terms of longevity, the Latin Vulgate is the most influential translation of the Bible in history. 
Why? Because it was the primary text that gave peoples their Bibles up till the 1400s. But as good as the Vulgate was or is, there were some shortcomings in the translation. For one, Latin doesn't have a definite article. So who's learned about that in school? What's a definite article? Like the, all right? So so Latin doesn't have that. And, and that's important because that article is in the Greek New Testament some 20,000 times. And so you could imagine what that does for a translation. And, and understanding its use is vital for hundreds of passages. And yet Wycliffe knew none of this since he only used the Latin text as his base. And so the Wycliffe Bible went through two editions, one in 1382 and the other in 13. 95. Um, after his death, his um, assistant, John Purvey, um, did that. And so the first edition was very literal, even to the point of maintaining the Latin word order, even when it made no sense in English. He, he was just, he was trying to be faithful, and he, and he kept the word order. And so the, the, the Wycliffe Bible showed early on that um, a word-for-word translation is not necessarily an accurate translation. Sometimes a verb could be first in Greek. You know, in English, it's, you know, it's at different spots, but it could be first in Greek. And if you did that, it just wouldn't make sense. So translators have to kind of smooth it out. But he just kept to it, um, and, and he wanted to communicate the, the original. Um, the second one was a, a better translation. It was a little bit more smooth, but still very wooden in that regard. So you could start to see how in the future people will like um, versions like the KJV, for example, because it, it flowed well and it was very poetic. And so you could see how it would start to set up for, for that translation. Now let us see John Wycliffe's translation significance. And, and um, there are at least three. That, that I could think of. First, it was the first complete Bible in English. All right? in, in fact, it is the first complete Bible in any modern European language. So it's very significant. Second, it helped break down the power structures of the political, religious Roman Catholic Church. Lay folks didn't need to rely on the priest to access um, God. And they could know his will and even challenge their spiritual leaders. It's no wonder that by 1408, even reading the Bible in English was outlawed by the church. And so it, it had a very powerful effect. You know, people who owned a copy, they risked their life and, and liberty. They could be thrown in prison. And so what he did was very powerful and, and, and hated at the same time. So much so that in 1415, remember, he's, he's dead now. And in 1415, the Pope decreed that his bones should be dug up and burned, and that the ashes, now think about it, like in the Bible, uh, when somebody's bones were burned, what did that signify? You're trying to do what? Desecration, you're trying to erase all trace of them. So the Pope decreed that it should be dug up and burned, and that the ashes scattered on the river swift. There's a lot of poetic justice to that, isn't it? Because just as his ashes is there running out down the river swift and into the ocean, what's happening to the word of God? It's kind of spreading out just like that. Amazing stuff. 
So God also took his word there um, to the world. A third significance is that it was completed more than 60 years before the invention of the movable type printing press. So how did he do it, you ask? By hand. He had to copy the Bibles. All Wycliffe's Bibles were handwritten copy. Now, this lessened the impact and, and, and how many people could have them because it, it took about a year to make one copy. And so you could see you had to wait for your Bible. Um, you know, thousands were made, though, just by hand. Um, before that. So if you could imagine waiting a year for a Bible, for a copy of your Bible, something that we take for granted now. You know, if we want a Bible, we go to the store and we know what we're looking for and we kind of flip through them and we have that luxury. Um, he didn't have that. Um, but um, but you've heard of Wycliffe Bible Translators. The, the organization continues today. And they continue to work really hard. Um, they, the goal is for them to get the Bible into the hands of people in their own language. Because they say that today, I took this off of their website, um, there are about 340 million people who do not have the Bible in their own language. 340 million. Um, in November 2008, Wycliffe USA publicly launched this new campaign. They, they call, they're calling it the Last Languages Campaign. And this is a mission of seeing a Bible translation program started in every language that needs one. And they want to have this by 2025. That's their, their goal. And it's a very challenging goal because there are almost 6,900 living languages in the world. And so it's a, it's a hard task for them. And there are others doing this work, but this is Wycliffe um, USA. And about a third of these languages, these 6,900 living languages, um, um, have their needs met for Scripture. So that's two-thirds of the languages that, that don't. Um, and about um, out of that two-thirds that don't, one-third of those or half of those have some kind of active translation going on right now. So they're working really hard. Um, the final one-third have no scripture in their language. Um, so they're involved, Wycliffe Bible translators are involved in three quarters of the known translations of the Bible in the world. And so look at this man who started from the Vulgate and how it's come forward. And they're involved in doing three quarters of the known scripture translations. Forty percent of the languages are in sub-Saharan Africa. Thirty-three percent are in northwest India and southwest China. 20% are in Indonesia and the Pacific um, area. And so you can see the mission of, of Wycliffe um, continues on uh, today. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Right. Right. You know, Jim always used the story about um, um, bringing Campus Crusade for Christ to Africa, right? And you mentioned the word crusade. People go, whoa, <laughs> you know, it means one thing to them. It means people are killing and so forth. But, yeah, you're right. So they, they have to learn the language, right? And then understand what things mean and then, then do the translation. George? Okay. Uh, why would they be 
talking two things when Wycliffe did his first translation he used the Latin okay they're 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 doing it different now but that's what he used he used the Latin when he did his translation in the, in the 14th century um, and um, he didn't know Greek and and um, and and Hebrew and as we go along we'll see how that developed where people started to use that but the Vulgate was very powerful at the time and what people use and um, and God used it you know, I, I wouldn't call it a faulty translation. Um, I think when, you, when you're looking at Latin, you just got to know some of those things. And, and, and people um, nowadays use the Greek and Hebrew that, that have more. But, but I wouldn't call it faulty. It was, it's a very good, good translation. Raphael? Perhaps it was very difficult to get Manuscripts, yeah, yeah, and 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 hang in there, and we'll 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 be hitting some of this too. So, so um, we'll 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 see we'll see more. All right, since we yes, Monica. Remember, the priests, for example, um, were the only ones that knew God's word, you know, because they knew Latin for the most part. People couldn't read Latin. Um, and so having, especially the common people um, who can read English, having that, they could look at it for themselves and say, wait a second, this doesn't say anything about that. And so that, yeah. Yeah, and and it just kind of took away, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, when when you could you mess around with a little kid and you could say, you know, they have a quart and you're like, I'll give you two of these for that one, and you have two nickels or something like that, you know, and then after they learn money, they're like, wait a second, you know, that's not fair, you know, so it was kind of like that. So according to this chart, the Zikla and the Yep, but. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to that. So hang tight with that. But yeah, the they they um, use the um, the the Douay reams. Now um, remember, Wycliffe too was also in the in the Catholic Church, and and the the Catholic Church still holds that the Latin um, is the is the way to go in terms of translating. Okay, but we'll look at some of that too, and we'll look at some of the struggles in the church where there were. Bibles that were pulled from the Greek and, and Hebrew, and they went back to that. But but hang in there, all right? Let's spend a little bit of time. We have a few minutes. We'll look at the development of the Tyndale Bible. Flip over to this part two, um, and we'll just we'll we'll chip away a little bit at this. Um, and um, so we we've had the 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 Wycliffe, all right? And um, 
um, you could you could see there um, the um, the the Tyndale. All right, there were no new translations that occurred between Wycliffe and and Tyndale. All right, so 130 years had passed without any progress. And a part of the reason was the fact that the British made a law in 1408 against any Bible in English. And so that was one way to stop it, all right? Um, and that law was still in effect um, in Tyndale's time. And so it would be risky enough just to make a copy of the Wycliffe Bible. People were still copying it by hand and passing it out, even though it was illegal. But it was risky enough just to do that um, and and... But there started to be some encouraging signs in the rest of Europe. Since the Wycliffe Bible, um, you started to see Italian and French and Spanish and Dutch Bibles appear. Now remember, the focus of the study is the English Bible, but you started to see some of those things appear. And, and it was most likely inspired by Wycliffe and his efforts, the things that he did. And so the stage here was being set for what would become the single most influential Bible translator of all time and perhaps having um, all that time between translations was a good thing. Because several major events took place between the time of Wycliffe and Tyndale. For example, an event that was called the Great Schism. Um, this took place between 1378 and 1417. I told you this would be very historical, so hang in there. During this time, 1378 and 1417, there were two rival popes. Um, one in Avignon and one in Rome. All right. So in their vernacular, no one knew who the vicar of Christ was on the earth. Another major, so the Great Schism was one, and then another major event was the invention of the movable type printing press in 1454. 1454. This was huge because, as mentioned, it took a year to copy the Bible, and it was all done by hand. And, and that's how Gutenberg's first full-length book, um, um, his, his Bible, was, was done. By the way, um, there were only 21 original copies of the first edition of the Gutenberg Bible remaining today. Um, so if you have one, it's quite valuable. You could pull it out now and auction it. Um, so the printing press was the catalyst for the production of the first published Greek New Testament, which was on March 1st, 1516. Then in October 31st, 1517, something started, a big thing started on that day. We call it Reformation Sunday. Some people, some churches celebrate Reformation Sunday. The Reformation's born, October 31st, 1517. This is when Luther challenges the Roman Catholic Church in Wittenberg, um, and he nails up his um, theses or assertions, if you will, on the door there at Wittenberg. So when you look at all these things, God uses them not only to pave the way for the Reformation, but for the word of God to become more widespread. And it was in this time that Tyndale and his Bible would be born. So who was Tyndale? Tyndale was born somewhere around 1490. Um, you know, within his immediate family, the Tyndales were also known um, at that period by the name of Hitchens. And it was as William Hitchens that Tyndale's family was related to Baron 
Adam de Tyndale. He was a tenant-in-chief of Henry I. And, and these tenants-in-chief, if you go back and look, these were people who were tenants directly to the king. All right? they, they, they rented from the king, if you will, versus some other noble. Um, and so the family history has some importance. William Tyndale was trained in Greek and Hebrew. He earned his bachelor's from Oxford in 1512. At age 17, he got his bachelor's, and he got his master's three years later in 1515. Um, he later studied at Cambridge to round out his education, and he became fluent in six or seven languages. This guy was smart. What about this translation, letter B? As he was thinking about a new translation of the Bible in the 1520s, he, he, he became convinced that it was impossible to do a translation in England. Remember, I just mentioned that they had outlawed in 1408 um, that you, you couldn't do a new Bible translation. And this edict was still in effect, so he, he, he's thinking, I, I can't do it. Plus, he couldn't find anyone in England who knew Hebrew. So he, he traveled to Germany, where he was introduced to some rabbis, and it was from them that he, um, he became more fluent even in Hebrew, and he learned to write it, and he learned more about it. And it was there in Germany that he translated much of the Bible into English, but he couldn't return to England for fear of his life. And... He was like Wycliffe where he had a passion for getting um, God's word into the hands of everyday people. Perhaps you've heard this one, but um, he was the one that had said he wanted the boy behind the plow to know more of the word of God than the clergy then. Remember, you've heard that one? Yeah, and this was Tyndale who said that. And this would come true by 1525, he had completed his first translation of the New Testament, but he couldn't get it printed until 1526. And you see those dates there on your chart. 1526, he actually got it printed. And only three copies of this first edition are around today. The latest one was delivered, discovered in 1996, and it was found completely intact. You know where they found it? On a bookshelf, somebody's bookshelf. It was just there. And they were just going through it, and they're, like, cleaning out. And they're like, what is this? And it was a Tyndale New Testament. Um, Tyndale later revised the New Testament substantially, and the revision was considered a masterpiece. He even coined some new words. This is how smart he was. He made up new words um, that were adopted into the English vocabulary. Words such as Passover, Peacemaker scapegoat, and even made up the adjective beautiful. All those words were coined by Tyndale. Why did he do that? He was trying to find an English word that would best represent what was in the Hebrew or the Greek, in the case of the New Testament, the Greek. And so he had to come up with these. Now, when it was all said and done, he produced five editions of the New Testament. Um, he also did a lot of work on the Old Testament, but he didn't get to complete it. Um, as far as we know, he only get, got to complete through Second Chronicles. Um, people were gunning for his life, and, you know, he just didn't get to do it. So in 1535, he was kidnapped, and in 1536, he was burned at the stake with a charge of heresy. Why was he a heretic? 
it was said that he did a corrupt translation of the Bible. In reality, it was a superb translation of the Bible. The clergy then wanted the common people to not understand the Bible, so they called him a heretic. And so it was a control issue more for them. And so as he was being burned at the stake, his dying words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That was his dying words at the stake. But little did he know, just just a few months before his death, a version of the Bible in English based largely on his own work had already been printed in England. He didn't know this. It was printed with King Henry VIII's blessing. So God had already heard his prayer even before he, he prayed it publicly, and God does that sometimes. But this is a remarkable translation. Now, Tyndale, he consulted with Luther's German translation, and he consulted with the Latin Vulgate to help him in some places. Um, You know, Raphael's mentioned that sometimes some of the manuscripts were hard to find, and sometimes they had to kind of fill in in some places with, with, you know, the Latin, and in his case, with Luther's German translation. But in in, in, um, his his, um, Greek text, he used primarily... And if you look at it here, he used primarily Erasmus's third edition of the Greek New Testament. It's on your second page there on the top to the right. You can see Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And you can look him up, but Erasmus was a, a Catholic priest who was a scholar. And you have to realize that the Bible had been in Latin and had um, been held away from people. So even when done in Greek, it wasn't good. And so he redid it. And Erasmus added study notes. Um, Listen to what he said here, Erasmus. He says, but one thing, the facts cry out, and it can be clear, as they say, even to a blind man, that often through the translator's clumsiness or inattention, the Greek has been wrongly rendered. Often the true and genuine reading has been corrupted by ignorant scribes, which we see happen every day, or altered by scribes who are half taught and half asleep. And so Erasmus, listen to this, is accused of laying the egg that Luther hatches. And so Luther kind of takes off on that. And people say that if he didn't come up with this Greek translation, that the reformers would not have had the kindle for the fire um, in translating the Bible into their languages. In answering the charge here, he said, yes, I am the one that laid the egg, Luther hatched. But I, I had expected quite another kind of bird, he said. This is Erasmus, he responded to that. Um, So when he published his Greek New Testament, he had only six Greek manuscripts. That's all he had to look at, six Greek manuscripts that were available to him. Those were from what is called the Byzantine family. And you can see that on the first page there in the the middle. That's the Byzantine family. And so one thing you'll hear is that groups of manuscripts are called family of manuscripts. So that's the term that you'll hear. And so... um, We'll, we'll, we'll discuss this later. So this third edition that Tyndale used will become very influential for, for Luther to translate the Bible to German and even for the King James. And so we're ramping up to that. So Tyndale used, his, um, used this. He turned good Greek into good English. Now let's stop there 
and then we'll pick up next time with the significance of Tyndale's translation, and then we'll go from there, and I think I owe some notes to everybody. So we'll get those um, to everybody next week. All right. So are you incredibly bored yet? We've got a long way to go. This is um, very historical, very interesting, fascinating to me. Anyways, um, but um, hang in there. Um, it'll all hang together, and then we'll see. We're working our way up to um, the authorized version, as it's called, and, and we'll see how this all just plays into, into all of that. All right, so Wycliffe, Tyndale, these were amazing people. Coverdale Bible, as we'll see, um, and then we'll get into the Great Bible, Bishop's Bible, and, and some of those as well. All right, any comments, thoughts? John? Has, yeah, but he, he only um, did the New Testament, and then he died, and then his, his folks finished the Old Testament. Yes. Yeah. And, um, but not as big as the Great Bible, which that's the, when you talk about the name, you know, it's, it's big. Um, there's a, there's a, a Bible that was handwritten. It's a modern handwritten Bible that somebody did. It's called the, um, the St. John's Bible that's being toured around the country. And that's pretty big, too. It's, it's about that. And um, I hear it's on campus. I'm going to go see it. George? Yes. Uh, some of the major languages like the the what Bible? The I don't. Is that the one that you use? Yeah, yeah. From what I understand, it's a good Bible. Yeah. Mhm. And that's what you exclusively use. Like as we're going through the Bible on Sunday mornings, that's what you're read, you're looking at, right? So, I, I, you know, if I had time, I might look at that more, but, but I, I didn't in this. I was more looking at English Bibles, the, the coming into English. I would add about the people today. Uh, it isn't simply that they walk into the country and translate Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I forgot about that. Hard work, isn't it? Yeah. You're doing some good work. Yeah. All for God's word. Amazing. What else? All hanging together in your mind so far? Yeah? All right. Let's close in prayer if there's nothing else. Father, help us to just recognize the incredible sacrifice so many people made in, in getting your word out to all the people. And that's the reason why we can have the word of God in our hands today, because of people like Wycliffe and Tyndale and, and others. Lord, um, so we thank you for preserving your word and bringing it down to us. Help us to love it, cherish it. Maybe read it even more, Lord, as a result of this course. So we thank you so much in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much for that informative uh, session again, Pastor. We just ask uh, that if you want to stay up to date, you want to see the outlines of the notes. These are in uh, embedded into the site. 
uh, not through iTunes, but the site has the note outlines in them. And you can find that and all of our social media content at uh, www.amos37.com. That looks like A-M-O-S, the number 37.com. You can find our Facebook, Twitter, YouTube accounts are all there. We recommend that you... Uh, Use iTunes to stay up to date as various uh, studies are all going up uh, together at different times as they become available. And uh, as always, that's our friend John Waller playing in the background. If you like his stuff, you can find him at johnwallermusic.com. And until next time, may God richly bless you as you continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. God bless. We love you. Just trust me with Look at me and I will lead you as you cling to the call. Yeah. Oh. I could stand without wavering just an hour ago. I could not deny you even a moment ago. Get me and I will lead you as you